Hey everybody, welcome into the Mining Stock Daily Long Form episode. Trevor Hall here, actually reporting back in Beaver Creek, but this time with MI2 Partners Global Macro Summit. I've got a great about 45-minute conversation just recorded with the one and only Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Uh, he's got an interesting perspective and thesis on the bond market. You think this is restrictive? Jim doesn't think it's as restrictive enough. We're going to get into that. It's really quite a fascinating how he believes that these these yields, the moves in the yields are based on trying to come to grips with a new economy, something that we hadn't seen before. A lot of people want to go back to 2019. We ain't going back. That's his thesis. So we're going to break that one down. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Arizona Snore and Copper, and Fireweed Metals for their continued support of the podcast. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, hit that uh, like, subscribe, and leave a review of the podcast on the network you use to listen to Mining Stock Daily. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, let's just cut it to my conversation with Jim. It's a wonderful 45 minutes. I hope you listen to it in its entirety. All right, here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to the Mining Stock Daily uh, long-form episode here this week. I'm back in Beaver Creek reporting this time from the Global Macro Summit with MI2 Partners. Uh, and uh, one of the, uh, I guess, featured presentations came yesterday from Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. And uh, I was really glad I could pin Jim down. Uh, this is an interview I've actually wanted to do for quite some time, Jim. It's a real pleasure to have you on. My family are used to seeing you in the mornings on Bloomberg once in a while. And so uh, my son was really excited when I told him that I was going to be able to spend some time with you. Well, I was hoping you would be excited because I signed a $200 million contract with the Broncos, but I'll take it. I'll take, <laughs> Wait, what, I'll take the, what I can get. The Broncos could use you, probably. <laughs> I can't be worse. <laughs> well, I mean, they are the Bears. I mean, right. let's talk uh, Sunday evening and see who's who's got their head up a little bit higher uh, after that. Um, hey, let's kind of like jump into it because you've, you've been out there hidden the financial medias with this theory that this bear case in yields is not done. In fact, you have think we're not even all that tight. We're not that restrictive. Kind of, if you can walk me through kind of the ethos of this thesis, what, you know, what was it that made you think and really go out there in a very public outspoken manner to say, this is, this, we are not done. This is not even tight and the worst is yet to come. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I think you got to start with what I have called the biggest macro event of our lifetime. And that was spring of 2020 when the economy completely shut, global economy completely shut down and restarted. That reboot of the economy, I think, changed things. To be specific, it took trends in place and it accelerated them. So it didn't create new ones. Work from home. Um, the, move, the, the empowerment of labor over management, which we're seeing now with the auto worker strikes and the Hollywood strikes and potentially some more strikes that are coming. Um, uh, quiet quitting would be another example of that. These were all going to come. These were all going to come over a period of many years. We sped it up because of that reboot of the economy. So I've argued that was an economic turning point in the economy. Now, I want to be clear on one thing. It caused a change in the trends. 
it didn't cause them to be dystopian or worse. It caused them to be different. Mm -hmm. So I've been very specific when I hear Jay Powell at his press conference talk about we're rebalancing, or when I hear Wall Street talk about we're normalizing. What they're talking about is nothing of significance happened in 2020. We're going to go back to the way things were in 2019. Just wait, we're going to go back there. I said, no, we're not. And I think one of the, so what is it that change, what is it that matters for investors is we're going to have stickier inflation. We're going to have higher inflation. A lot of that is going to come from wages. A lot of that is going to come from imbalances because of these changes. Let me give you one example of a change. Prior to the pandemic, we were all home two days a week, Saturday, Saturday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. Now, because 50% of the workforce, the um, white collar workforce or the <coughs> office workforce is remote three day, uh, two days a week. So you are probably home Monday and Friday now in addition to Saturday and Sunday. So restated, you were home two days a week. You're now home four days a week. Your lifestyle has changed. My lifestyle has changed because of your own more. You're, you're doing things differently. You're buying different things. You're engaged in activities you never did before because you have more time you, you, and things have changed. The retailers have really discovered this because they're trying to figure out what to put on the shelves because yeah. people are not buying things like they used to. They really had this trouble in 21 and 22 that they were really struggling to get stuff on the shelves. So what I'm leading up to is if we're going to have higher nominal growth driven by, nominal growth, by the way, is real growth plus inflation, driven by more inflation, then the neutral funds rate, which is keyed off of inflation, neutral interest rates, which is keyed off inflation, that has been moving up as interest rates have been moving up. The mistake everybody makes is nothing changed in 2020. So mm -hmm. what was neutral in 2019, 2%, is still neutral, 2%. So they look at 5%, 5.5%, six-month T-bills, five and a quarter on the funds rate, and they go, the Fed is tight by 300 basis points. I would actually argue to you that the neutral funds rate might be closer to 4.5 because the, I think that the neutral fund inflation rate now is 3. I think real rates in a higher inflation environment should be somewhere between 1.5 in two, but let's go with four and a half. So a lot of the move in interest rates from 50 basis points in August of 2020 in the 10 year note to 460 the day that we're recording, mm -hmm. a lot of that was just following neutral higher. And so while we are restrictive, we're not nearly as restrictive as everybody thinks. So we're not going to damage the economy with these higher rates as much as people think and they can continue to go higher. So what is it, what was what do you think the fuel behind these this higher these higher yields in the in the long end of the curve is it do you, do, you, do you have a hunch that maybe it is the dumping uh, dumping of those uh, of those treasuries based on that neutral rate or is, is it because there's they have to sell something at some point? Well, <clears throat> I think there's two things in that question. First of all, let's talk about um, uh, you know, the Treasury's chief salesman is Janet, Sel Janet Yellen, mm -hmm. and Janet Yellen has lost her three biggest customers. Um, her biggest customer was the Fed uh, that was buying a, a lot of her bonds. Um, they are no longer buying bonds because of quantitative tightening. Now, to be clear, in quantitative tightening, they're not selling anything. They're actually just letting bonds mature, 
and then they're buying back 95 billion less. So if $120 billion of bonds matures this month, they would buy back 25 billion and then they, their balance sheet would be reduced by 95. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they're doing. But nevertheless, a big buyer is gone. The next big buyer that is, is disappearing um, is the banks themselves. Because after the failure of the banks in the spring, Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, because they were long duration, uh, the, the, the regulators like the Fed have come in and said, you can't be making duration bets anymore. So the big buyer of bonds of the banks, they're gone as well. And then the third big buyer of bonds is foreigners. And they are souring on, not only are they souring on buying bonds, but the BRICS countries are getting together and trying to get out of the dollar altogether in terms of trying to change trade. Now, I think that is gonna be a failed effort, but nevertheless, they're not buying. So let's start with the big problem that bonds have. Those three big buyers are gone. Mm -hmm. um, they, the, they're not maybe big sellers yet at this point. The other problem that the bond market has is, let's talk about the private sector now, like you know the mutual funds, hedge funds, individual investors. They're all looking at a giant rise in rates, and I've heard it at this conference too. This is gonna kill, kill the economy. And I've said, no, we're following neutral up. No, it's gonna kill the economy. And when the economy gets killed, the Fed's going to have to cut rates next year, and there's going to be a gigantic bond rally. So we all have to be long bonds for this giant rally. This has been the theme everybody's said all year. And look at what's happened to housing. Look at what's happening to office real estate. Or look what's happening here or there. The economy's going to hell, and then we're going to have a giant bond rally. The argument is compelling. Everybody has been getting long because of that compelling argument and they've been getting destroyed because mm -hmm. the opposite has been happening. So I also think what you're seeing now is a capitulation that you're right, you're right, you're right, and I'm getting destroyed in my performance. I cannot stay in this position anymore, which is why we're starting to see a lot of people now starting to exit the bond market, and that's been the most recent um, rally higher. And finally, if I would, I'll throw this out kind of as a half joke but half serious. Um, in my theories that labor and management, mm -hmm. um, labor is definitely getting the, um, the upper hand. You know, a quick example. In 2019, if you or me met a professional, doesn't matter what field they're in, they're a professional, they're serious about a career, and, we sa and they said, you know, my boss said I have to be in the office five days a week, so I quit. We would have sent them to a psychiatrist. What is wrong <laughs> with you? In 2023... My boss wants me in the office five days a week, so I quit. We'd, we'd nod our head and go, that's kind of what we do now. So that's how much things have changed, and that puts labor at an advantage over management. Tuesday afternoon, we also had a powerful signal about labor having an advantage over management. The president of the United States, for the first time in history, walked a picket line with yeah. a bullhorn, and I think that the message of the market was, Labor's going to get its way. It's going to get much higher wages. And the 10-year yield went 20 basis points higher within two days. Because I think, I know, like I said, I'm kind of half kidding about it. But I'm also half serious about it, too, that we're looking around going, where is this deflation going to come from? Where is this disinflation going to come from? They're talking about a 32-hour work week and a 40% wage increase. All right, maybe they downed it to 30. But that's an enormous wage increase. That's, that, that is just not going to happen without the price of cars going up to offset that. The price of cars will go up 
to offset what um, the UAW wants. So mm -hmm. we're going to be stuck with this higher inflation. And I think that the bond market saw that when the president is walking a picket line and they said, you know what, we're going to see higher inflation. We're going to see higher car prices, not next month or the month after, but eventually over time. Uh, so there's a couple of different directions I can take this, but I, I just want to make one clarification because we get all this data, you know, every week and you can make the argument we're seeing cracks in the economy and that's the bearish case for people out there. That's why you saw $16 million of inflows into TLT perhaps. But your argument, and I just want to make this clarification, your argument is that those aren't necessarily cracks. We're seeing the transition into a new economy that wasn't there before 2020. And we just are trying to shift and make this transition uh, you know, basically day by day. That That's your argument. Yes. So okay. <clears throat> to put some color on that, um, TLT, which is the iShares 20 plus year bond ETF, um, has had over $16 billion of new money come into it. It is ranked of all the thousands of ETFs. It is the second largest inflow of any ETF. The only one that's larger is VOO, which is the Vanguard S&P 500 fund, which is the popular one that all 401k and retirement plans have. So people fill out the form in HR and they want to put their money, they want a little bit of money come out of their pay paycheck every month and go into the stock market, it's VOO. So that's always number one. Mm -hmm. Number two now is TLT. Now what makes TLT very interesting is at the same time that TLT has gotten $16 billion, it's been getting crushed. I don't mean it's been having a bad year. It's down 14% right. or so this year. It's been terrible. So people are throwing money at an instant and big loser, and they're not stopping. And their argument has been because interest rates are going to kill the economy, and there's going to be a giant rally. And my retort to that is you're still arguing the 2019 paradigm that if we saw a 500 basis point rise in interest rates in 2019, that would put the economy on its knees. This is 2023, and we had, we had the biggest economic event of our lifetime in between with the shutdown. Mm -hmm. Now what we're seeing is a big rise of inflation, and we're following the inflation rate higher. Yes, higher rates are impacting housing. They're impacting commercial real estate. They are, but it's a $30 trillion economy. And it's a big enough economy, I could, you could say, that look at new home sales. Nobody's buying new homes because they're all trapped in 3% mortgages and they don't want to go get a 75 or 8% mortgage to buy a new home. In other words, trade out of my 3% mortgage home that I live in now yeah. and then have to go buy another home at a 75 or 8% mortgage. They don't want to do that because they don't want to have the higher cash flow. Granted, you're right. But I'll point over here at the energy industry, which is just as big. I'll point at the healthcare industry, which is even larger. And I'll say, they're doing great over there right now. We've got higher energy prices. Things are moving along. Healthcare is, is, is definitely moving along as well, too. In, on balance, the economy is not broadly suffering from higher rates because they're not that restrictive, at least yet. So what, did we have the recession, those two negative GDP quarters? Was that, was that it? I think it was. So what we're talking about is in the first and second quarter of last year, we had back-to-back neg negative GDP quarters. Um, and that occurred in the middle of a 20% correction in the stock market last year. Um, I think that fits the definition of a recession, mm -hmm. is what that does. And 
Um, if it isn't, it will only be the second time in American history that we've had two negative quarters in a row that was not a recession. The other one was 1947 uh, that we did that as well, too, coming off of World War II. Um, when I say that, people get really angry. Oh, does that mean, that mean all the bad news is back and we're <laughs> off to the races for 10 years? No. What it means is that the slowdown is done and now comes inflation. Now we're going to accelerate mm. inflation. If you want an example of it, 1975, the recession ended. Were we off to the races? No, because then for the rest of the 70s, we had higher inflation and stocks suffered because of the competition. This is the problem that risk markets are facing right now. In 2019, you have to own stocks. Why? Because what's the Tina? There is no alternative. Because if you don't like stocks, you can invest in a, T, um, in a money market fund that's earning you nothing right, right now. Right. In 2023, if I don't like the stock market, uh, let me back up. The University of Chicago does um, the Center for uh, Securities Research Pricing. Uh, has done some long-term studies and says that the stock market over the long term will return you 9%. Okay. It's returned me zero in the last two years. It was down big last year. It's up, up largely because of the Magnificent Seven this year. But if you accept that over time, I'll get a 9% return. I can get five and a half in a money market fund with no risk. No market-based risk is yeah. why I could get five and a half. I could get over half that return without taking any market-based risk. There is an alternative. And as interest rates go up, that alternative will become more and more viable. And so I think you're starting to see that is also impacting the way that the markets are trading. So give you an example. If you take the Magnificent Seven, you know, the, the FANG stocks plus Microsoft and Tesla out of the equation, the S&P 493, if you want to think of it in those terms, <laughs> is up less than 1% this year. Mm. The Russell 2000 small caps are unchanged as of two days ago. Um, these companies are not really, as a group, doing much of anything. It's only if you were along NVIDIA and Tesla and um, Amazon and Apple that you've wound up making money. Why is that? Because of this alternative. They've got two big problems that, they're, that they have to overcome. One, their labor costs are going up because the president's yelling in a bullhorn that you have to pay your employees more money, and they're realizing, man, they're going to squeeze my profits. And two, if people don't like what you're offering, they can get 5.5% for doing nothing. And so that's changing the dynamic for the risk markets right now, which is why I think if your stock does not get all excited about AI, which is only seven of them, you ain't doing anything as yeah. a group after that. Um, a good friend of the podcast, Jared Dillian, actually just tweeted today um, who he was he, – he felt the top and yields were in, and he tweeted today that uh, you were right. He was wrong. I had not seen that. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, – uh, I, I, I'll, I'll, th I'll thank him for saying that. <laughs> And um, uh, I, I, I don't want to get a big head over, over that, well, but, but he but, will eventually be right. But I told you, I told you yesterday, or maybe it was Tuesday night when we, were, when we first met and we were talking, because I was telling you, you know, I'm in the, the mining and metal space, and we were talking about gold. And I said, you asked me, like, how do you feel about gold now? And I, and I honestly said, like, I mean, despite being volatile a couple of days, I think gold's been trading uh, pretty well. But then we just took, like, a $50, $60 haircut off the off the spot price. But then I said, I said, Jim, like, if you're right, and we have not seen the top 
in in yields. Seven percent on the ten year scares the shit out of me mm-hmm. as a as a gold investor. Um, because well, seven would at that point we would be flat out restrictive unless you would so make the where, case that we would have even higher inflation. Okay, but where? Okay, so if we're not because remember restrict- we're four sixty now. That's a big move. That's from a, here. I know that's a big move, but we also see higher levels of inflation. I mean, in the last the last two inflation cycles, there's three steps of of higher inflation. You know, we go right. up, we go down a little right. bit, then we go higher, we go down, then we go really high, and then you you know then you get the Volcker type of moves. Uh, you know, the tightening. So, it, but if it's if this isn't tightening, if four six isn't tight, and it's just natural, where is tight? At least to the point where we really start feeling it. Um, well, to be clear, we are feeling it in interest rate sensitive sectors. Like I said, the, if you look at the day we're recording, you know, new home sales came out and, it, and the numbers plunged. Nobody's moving. They're not, they're not moving homes because of the, of the higher interest, uh, higher mortgage rates. So it's not that it's not non-existent. I'm arguing that on a $30 trillion economy, there are sectors that are being hurt by interest rates. There are sectors that are somewhat immune to it, like energy and healthcare, that the $30 trillion economy can handle these rates. So the question is, when do the rates just flat out become restrictive for the entire $30 trillion economy, oh, I would say that they'd probably have to get into the low to mid fives at a minimum. And mm. if they continue to go higher from there, I'm talking about the 10-year yield, by the way. Yeah. Um, um, and then if they continue to move on higher from there, that it would become um, e- even more restrictive at this point. So, and as those rates move up, you would, the competition towards, hey, buy the S&P. Well, it's only moving because of AI. Well, what about the rest of the stocks? Eh, I'll pass. I'll put my money in a bond fund. I'll get my 5% yield. You're going to only offer me 9 in the stock market over long periods of time. Oh, but the stock market will offer you more than 9 in the next two years. That's a market call. Yeah. Well, then, then, just go, then just go speculate you know, in Vegas and on... <laughs> Uh, go buy zero DTE options at that point and go get, go on Reddit because that's all you're doing then is you're speculating. But if you, if you are a long-term investor, you're looking at nine is what you're looking at. Uh, and I'll just take five and a half and sleep at night because I know no matter what happens, I'm going to get five and a half tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a narrative and anecdotal guy myself. And so, you know, I shared a couple stories this week. Uh, and I've shared with the podcast, like, you know, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia a couple weeks ago. Uh, there was a lot more empty storefronts than I had remembered the last time I was there. So I used that anecdote. I walked downtown Denver, and there's far fewer construction cranes in Denver than there was a year ago. But, you know, it seems like the, all this multifamily construction we've been building maybe has been overdone. Um, okay. And, you know, and that's, that's anecdotal. So I'm just, you know, can I, I don't— can I, can I jump on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, you're right. You know, I'm, I live in Chicago, and I see the same thing, too. But I would argue to you that on the two examples you gave, one, um, you're seeing a lot more empty storefronts. That's a phenomenon, I think, of work from home. And that's a phenomenon sure. of where we are shopping right Re- now. Retail. Yeah. Right. That there, and you could maybe even throw in the euphemism the retail industry uses of retail shrink, which you and I know as <laughs> widespread shoplifting, which is a big problem is, that is yes. not being controlled. That's not an interest rate problem. And that's not going to be solved by, you know, people don't want to go. I'll use my example in Chicago. They don't want to go back to the offices in the loop. Okay. 
if I cut interest rates tomorrow to zero, are they going to go back to the offices in the loop and start shopping at those old storefronts in the loop? Nope. So interest rates will not solve that problem. Multifamily. The problem with overbuilding multifamily is, again, a lifestyle change. Um, if you if there are more remote work jobs and there are more um, uh, fully remote work jobs, a lot of people are saying, look, I lived in this apartment because it was a 10-minute drive from my office. Mm-hmm. If I only have to go to the office one, two, three days a week, I, I want to live somewhere else. And I will either take the longer commute or I'll find a job where I can have the freedom to live where I want to live. Uh, and so you're starting to see people... You know, we're in Beaver Creek and Vale, and I'll use the high end example. I'm, I'm tired of living in Manhattan. Um, and there's, there's one of the presenters here. Uh, I'm tired of living in Manhattan. He moved out here. Mm-hmm. He works remotely out here. And it's easier now to do than ever before. So there's one less demander of a high-end apartment in Manhattan, and there's one more demander of a high-end unit in Vale or Beaver Creek. And so that's what's been happening. It's the cultural shift because, like I said, labor has the advantage. They're pushing this remote work thing. Yeah. It is a cultural change. And we're all talking about rebalancing and normalization. Well, we're not going back to 2019. Mm. And last thing I would give you is, I also think part of the problem, if I could give you one other antidote here, if there is an example of, if there's a historical example of what we're talking about, it was after World War II. September 45, we won the war. October 45, the payroll report showed minus 2.1 million jobs were lost in that month, which was the largest monthly loss until um, March of 2020. Mm-hmm. We celebrated that because what that was was the war was over. We didn't need people making Sherman tanks or P-51 fighter planes. So we stopped production of them. And we were happy that those 2.1 million people lost their jobs because everybody knew this is going to have to change. The economy is going to have to change to a consumer-led economy. And throughout the rest of the 40s and into the early 50s, we had a bout of inflation. We had a couple of recessions as we reorient. But what we were doing was we were restructuring the economy and we took off into the 50s and into the 60s. I would argue we need to do something similar to that after uh, what we saw happen with the shutdowns and the restart. But the difference is you got Dave Solomon at Goldman Sachs, you've got Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan, and they're basically saying, no, we don't have to do anything. You lousy people, it's lazy people got to get out of your pajamas, get back to the office. We need to normalize. We need to go back to 2019. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the problem. We're not getting about saying we have to rethink what the post-pandemic economy is because we don't think there's a post-pandemic economy. It would be analogous to after World War II in October of 45. No, we still have to keep making fighter planes and tanks because yeah. we still need them. And so th- this, is, this is the problem. We're not ready to embrace that idea. We're, we still have enough boomer managers that are complaining that people are not going to the office every day. You know, get used to it. Three days in the office is the new norm. And so until we're ready to embrace this, we're not ready to restructure the economy. It will stay in various levels of out of balance, and it'll help to keep inflation stickier and higher. Well, if, but if I can push back on the idea, and I think it's, I don't necessarily think it's apples to apples, but it's not necessarily apples to oranges either. But the big difference after World War II is there was... Macintosh to red? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, there was a collective societal optimism in the United States after World War II. 
Right. They knew they were going to come out of that, and the world was going to be completely different, and it was, and they were prepared to, we as a society, to work collectively. To That's where you get, you know, the production growth in, in the 50s, and that was the cycle. In this cycle, we don't have that collective optimism. Agreed. 100% agreed. So, and how does this fill into the cycle, you know, the, this natural cycle? Because I think we don't have that, uh, that optimism now because we're unsure whether we're in a cycle or not. I think, though, that if the cycle was, look, this is a new environment, we were going to, remember, as I said at the top, we were going to get here anyway. What COVID did with the shutdown and the restart was, um, and Nick Bloom of Stanford University has done some groundbreaking work on it, and he describes it well. You know, we were going to be here in 25 years, where mm -hmm. we are now, three-day work weeks. In the, work five days a week, but three days in a centralized sure. office. We were going to be here in 25 years. We got here in three, is what we did. There's an optimism that people could have off of this and say, wow, I could take the job I want, and I can live in, I can live in Vail. I can live in Florida, I can live in Arizona, I can live in Manhattan, or I can live anywhere in between. I can choose where I want to live. And no longer do I have to live in a bedroom community near a rail line to go to a central location that I wouldn't have picked, but I pick it because it's convenient for my job. That, uh, that could be optimistic, but we're not ready to embrace that that's where we are. And we are in some flux, in some state of, of unsuredness and confusion which is where i think that is and then a lot of it is is cultural mm -hmm. i think the you know the political partisanship the crime rate um a lot of that is 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 you know kind of depressing our mood but again that's not an interest rate problem is what that is but i really think what it is is that we're not ready to fully embrace the cycle that has changed because some of our leaders like Solomon and, and Diamond are arguing it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And so that level of confusion is why we're not optimistic about it yet. You put up a, an incredible graphic in your presentation yesterday on the use of public transportation and how, and I, I was looking at it, it's about roughly 60% now than it was prior to right. COVID. Uh, it was just an, it was just, it was an incredible data point. And, and I get why public transportation isn't being utilized as much. But I'm, we're also talking about, okay, so in this next cycle, if we're going to have some sort of financial repression and wanting to re-industrialize, reshore, deglobalize, and, and, and kind of bring in these big CapEx projects and infrastructure projects, where's it going to go if you don't have the utilization from the public? Well, it will, it will come from the public. Let, let's be clear on what we're talking about. Um, the Federal Transportation Administration, yes, there is one. I learned about this last year. <laughs> it's actually part of the Department of Transportation. Puts out data on all 220-plus public transportation systems, everything from water taxis to, to light rail to buses. Um, October of 2014 was the all-time peak at 970 million rides nationwide. That number was like 940 million in January of 2020. We're only 60% of the way back on that number, largely because of work from home. Um, that has a big implication on another level. The CARES Act that was passed in 2021 yeah. is subsidizing public transportation through the end of next year. 
So these public transportation systems are losing obscene amounts of money, but they're being subsidized by the federal government because the federal government can run a deficit, a state and a city cannot. They have to balance their budget. Now, if you tell me that there's going to be a Democrat sweep next November, they'll extend the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. If you tell me that there's going to be a Republican something, House, Senate, presidency, all of the above, some of the above, it won't get extended. And then there's going to be an Old Testament-style change in existing public transportation. The New York City subway system, which is everybody's favorite example, is already talking about moving Monday and Friday to weekend service. In other words, the the rush hour is going to be three days. And all of the all of the um, real estate developers in Manhattan are losing their mind. I've got these big office towers, and you're telling me that you're only going to run service for people to commute to work Tuesday through Thursday, mm-hmm. and you're not going to run it Monday through Friday? Well, yeah, because the New York subway system is running at 65% of capacity, and it is losing an obscene amount of money, so it has to cut back its service. It's being subsidized now by the federal government, but that will end at the end of next year. Yeah. Um, and so... That's what's going to happen. So a lot of these public transportation systems are, first of all, endemic of what's happening with the cultural shift. They're going to have some kind of an Old Testament change when that money runs out, because I'll assume there will be a Republican something after November 24, and no CARES Act reauthorization is going to pass the Congress and the Senate go to the president's desk to be signed um, at that point. And... Now, if you want to talk about reshoring and everything else, it just won't be the New York City subway system. Mm-hmm. It just won't be the Chicago transit system or the BART system. So where is it? So where is it? Is it, is it an energy? Is it, do you see a CapEx, industrial CapEx boom at all? And if yeah. so, does it come in energy? I think it, it comes in, I think it comes in, in, in manufacturing. I think it comes in mm-hmm. industrials. I think it comes in, you know, th- that we are going to build, we're going to build fab plants here. We're going to build more stuff here, um, and so you're going to see that, and we're going to see uh, more workers come in. We're going to see the economy reorient, and again, it's going to reorient, and it's not going to need the BART system in San Francisco, right. or it's not going to need the CTA or the MTA, which Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York City. It's not going to reorient in a way that that's going to create more riders for them, it's going to reorient that it's going to create more commuting, new commuting patterns that don't exist right now, whether they're car or some new, new public transportation system for those new systems remains to be seen. And if there is an, industrial, an industrialization boom, I, I keep on thinking about the demographics of where that would take place. And I think it's pretty obvious that if you're going to increase manufacturing, you have to have distribution. And forgive me, this is a little bit of, you know, Peter Zion-esque, but you need to be an extra waterway to where you can move move that stuff out mm-hmm. cheaply and quickly. So the east or majority of the West Coast is off limits because of politics. You could probably get some East Coast type of industrialization, but the Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Gulf area would be likely and then even maybe the Mississippi, Missouri Valley, you, you go back to the Rust Belt. Like, very much, very much. I think you're thinking the right way. Um, you're, you're, you're thinking the right way. In other words, 
There's two types of thinking about the economy right now. Um, let's build another office tower in Manhattan because that's what the world needs. <laughs> or let's start thinking about a reindustrialization and maybe there's an argument to be made that a, a fab plant or something that requires um, um, reindustrialization might be made in Mobile, Alabama mm -hmm. because it makes more sense there. So which argument is it? Well, in 2019, the argument was clear. You want to build another uh, office tower in Manhattan. But in 2023, it should be clear you don't need another office tower in Manhattan. In fact, they're going to start tearing them down. They're going to start tearing Class B and Class C offices down in Manhattan because they're empty and nobody wants them. And they're going to be blights on the city at that point. But I think you're thinking right, right way. This is a new cycle. This is not re waiting for everybody to go back five days a week. This is not waiting for a normalization or a rebalancing um, as well. And like I said, do not discount the idea that, and I want to emphasize this, you were home two days a week, you're now home four days a week. It's more than just, I just get to stay home. You are doing things and buying things that you never did or bought mm -hmm. because you're home four days a week that you weren't before 2020. And the rest of the economy, supply chains have to adjust for that reality. And they're only now beginning the process. They wasted three years in that process. They're only now beginning that process. Uh, last question regarding cycles, and I do want to talk about labor, because this union, this, 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 the unionization and this, I don't know if you call it revitalization of unions. Uh, Let's call it uh, labor empowerment. La labor empowerment. I like it. I actually, like, you know, it's funny because in the last couple of weeks, people who I I know inherently are not pro-labor or, you know, pro-union have come out and said, yeah, these people need to get paid more. And so, it, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, collectively, there's a little bit of support here. Um, you come from Chicago. I used to live in Chicago. I know Chicago is a pretty unionized town right. in many places. Uh, in this cycle, are we going to see you know, labor become a huge part of the next inflation, inflationary pulse with unions being as, you know, as powerful as maybe they were 50, 60 years ago? Well, the short answer to the last question is no, because the, only 6% of the private workforce is unionized right now. Okay. Um, unions are powerful because about half of the government workforce is unionized, mm -hmm. whether it's teachers unions or the SEIU, or some of the other unions, they do they do have a, a tremendous amount of power over that. But labor is going to have a power. But let's let me let me say what you're seeing. Let's use the two high profile. Um, let's use the two high profile strikes that we have going sure. on now. UAW and Hollywood. There is a theme between the two of them, in that what they're arguing about is new technology. Hollywood, center of that debate in Hollywood. Uh, which was with the writers, which just recently settled, and now is with the actors, is AI. Mm -hmm. Because what they're afraid of, what they're afraid of is, it's not ready yet, but pretty soon, there's going to be a blockbuster billion-dollar revenue movie made on an iPad. Right. It's going to be ChatGBT wrote the script, and it's going to be it's going to be avatars that look like human beings that are been programmed to act out the script. And it's going to go. It's going to go to streaming, or maybe to theaters. And there's going to be no human beings that are going to get paid on this. That's what they're striking about: was the control of that technology so that they don't all lose their jobs. Center of the UAW strike. We all like to talk about that they want 
40-hour, 32-hour work week. They want to go remote work, too. They want four days a week. Yeah. Uh, they want a 40% raise, which they said is 30. But the center of that is, is um, EVs, electric vehicles, and the push to electric vehicles. It takes, just for people to know, there's about two or 3,000 moving parts in an internal combustion car. There's about two or 300 moving parts in an EV. Yeah. And so it takes about one-third of the workforce to um, build an EV over an internal combustion engine car. And a lot of that workforce isn't even unionized to begin with. But they're starting to think that, and especially now that the EVs are going towards being more modular, kind of Lego, kind of slap them together. Uh, there's, there's a famous picture of the fab plant that they make the uh, batteries for the Teslas in um, Nevada. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the plant just shows a, just an endless stream of robots. <laughs> and there's one human being standing in the middle of the plant. And Elon Musk tweeted out many years ago, what's he doing in there? And that's what the UAW is afraid right, of, right, right, is right. that we're going to build an entire fleet of cars without a human being being involved in building any of these cars. Oh, yeah, they'll get some jobs repairing the robots, but that'll be a small fraction of the jobs they have. Now, my point is they're arguing about technology as much as they are arguing about that we need to get paid. Yeah, maybe they do need to get paid. Maybe that management took a little bit too much advantage over unions. But really, the catalyst, I think, has really been about new technologies. Kaiser Permanente has got 75,000 workers and they've authorized a strike by October 4th if they don't get, uh, these are healthcare workers. So, um, and it would be the largest healthcare strike in American history if it happens, if it happens on October 4th. But if you look <laughs> at what they're looking at too, again, it's technology that, you know, a lot of the diagnosticians and everything else, they're going to be put out of jobs because yeah. AI is going to be reading all of the. We don't need radiologists anymore. AI will do it. Uh, and so a lot of that is all about, about the technological change as well, too. Uh, we haven't even talked about a government shutdown. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's not a strike by any means because they're going to end up getting paid whenever they do right. come back I mean, to work. The, the, one of the reasons why I'd like to say, why the government's going to shut down, you would think, you would think, Without think, you know, not understanding that the, the, why aren't there like government workers protesting in Washington right now that they're going to get shut down? Because every government shutdown has always ended with everybody who's been furloughed. Yeah. Remember, there's two types of workers. There's essential the workers that, like air traffic controllers, will sure. have to go to work Monday if there's a government shutdown because they're not going to close the air traffic system. Yeah. Uh, but then there's and FBI will have to go to work on Monday because bad guys will still be out there. But does the SEC have to go to work on Monday? Does the Bureau of Labor Statistics have to put out the payroll report on Friday? No, they don't have to. They'll be sent home. But, they, but for them, they know that every government shutdown means that when the government shutdown ends, they're going to get paid for all those off days. So what are they going to do on Monday? They're going to get on a plane and come to Beaver Creek. They're right. going to get some extra. They, they're getting extra paid days of vacation. Right. That's Otherwise, if they were going to lose days of income, They'd be out there protesting. Oh, 100%. That's yeah. why they're not protesting. You know, and I posed this question yesterday. I don't know if you were in the room, but we were talking about, you know, more fallout in the regional banks. And what's, what's interesting is their quarterly reporting is mid-late October. And the, another gentleman, a political advisor out of Washington, was in a session, and he expects this... Um, government shutdown to go a couple weeks through mid to late October. 
if there is an issue, and this is just speculation, right? right. It's nothing, I'm just thinking out loud. If there is an issue with more regional banks in this financial period, how does the government go in and save the day like they did with SVB in a government shutdown? Oh, because the uh, the Fed is essential, and the Fed is there, and the printing presses are essential, and they'll still be working. Oh, they still work? They <laughs> yeah. <do>? Okay. <laughs> yes. The printing presses are as essential as the military. The military will still be, you know, it's not like we're going to still, it's not like we're going to idle all the aircraft carriers because we're in a government shutdown. The military will still work, but yeah. the Fed will, st- will, they'll, will still be there. <clears throat> but um, I don't think we're on the precipice. The problem that the regional banks have, let me say, say it this way is not that there is a risk that some regional bank is going to go belly up and your money is going to be trapped in the bank. I don't think that's a risk. <clears throat> the problem the regional banks have is that they're having a profitability problem. The money market funds offer 5.5%. They offer 1% on yeah, a yeah. deposit. And now we've got a new technology, again, technology, and that's mobile banking. 120 million people a month use a mobile banking app, largely for to pay bills and to move money. Well, this is move money. People are going to wake up one day and go, why am I getting 1% of my money in a bank account? If I pick up my phone for five minutes, I can move it to a money market fund and pick up thousands of dollars in interest income. And I don't have to leave bed. Right. You know, and that's what's happening. And that is squeezing banks. It's forcing banks to raise their deposit rates and squeeze their net interest margins. That's why the bank stocks are struggling as much. Now, there's 4,200 banks in the United States. Are some of them being mismanaged? Absolutely. Are some of them at risk of failing? Sure, that's always the case. But are we at widespread risk of mass defaults in banks? I don't think so. We are at widespread risk is of mass unprofitability in banks. That doesn't risk, doesn't put your money at risk. If you're a bank holder, that puts your dividend at risk. Is well, what it does. Well, I mean, but doesn't that corporate real estate and multifamily stuff we just talked about a while ago doesn't that have implications on the regional banks? I mean, absolutely. Seventy percent I mean, of all commercial real estate loans are done by regional banks, and a lot of that is held on the balance sheets of those banks. It's not been securitized and sold to investors, yeah. so those banks are sitting on some of those bad assets. Now they're starting to get realized, but again, that is just. Take the loss, increase your loan loss provisions, squeeze your profitability. Where do you get that money from to increase your loan loss provisions? This quarter's earnings. And because it's, the, it's this quarter's earnings, um, you know, you, it, this is why the bank stocks are down. Yeah. And what I'm trying to emphasize is I'm not worried about my money in a bank, that right. I can't get access to it. Sure. But if I owned a bank stock, I'm worried about my dividend. That's uh, that's yeah, the yeah. way you right. have to think about it. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Jim, I asked for 30 minutes. You can give me 45 so I appreciate the extra time and all the time you gave us. Uh, it's great to meet you. I love the presentation. I hope we could have you on again over time and, and talk some more of whatever's happening on any given day. Thank you. I appreciate it and really enjoyed it. All right. All right. That's Jim Bianca from Bianca Research, everybody. And that's a wrap here this week. We'll be back Monday morning with the morning briefing. Have a great weekend and be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.